Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome to the Doctors of Running podcast, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and the science of the stuff that we're putting on our feet. I'm Andrea Myers, and I'm here with DOR contributor Megan Flynn, and we are so excited to have a very special guest on with us today, Amelia Boone. Amelia is an incredible obstacle racer and ultra runner, and we're just so happy to have her on the pod to talk about training and racing and life training balance. Um, For those who don't know Amelia, she is a full-time corporate attorney, an obstacle racer and ultra runner. She is also a four-time world champion and one of the most decorated obstacle racers in history. Over her career, she has amassed more than 50 podiums and 30 victories in obstacle racing. Um, One of the most impressive uh, race results that Amelia has had is she is a three-time death race finisher, which I would like to hear more about what exactly the death race is, Amelia. So you'll have to tell us a little more about that. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Um, So to get started, uh, we always do a subjective at the beginning of an episode. So we want to know from you listeners, how do you balance running with everyday life? I really want to hear more about how Amelia can balance being a corporate attorney and getting all the training she needs to get in and be such an amazing racer. So leave a comment either on the podcast webpage, on YouTube, or send us an email at doctorsofrunning at gmail.com. So Amelia, I think the first thing I would love to know about you is how did you get started in obstacle racing? Have you always been a runner or was this something that you picked up later in life? Yeah, it actually, it was something I picked up later in life. So I played team sports growing up, played soccer, played softball. Softball was actually my main sport. I was a pitcher. Um, And I would run to stay in shape, but I never really, or like to train or to stay in shape for soccer, but it was never, it was never my sport. Never ran cross country, never ran track. I went to undergrad, I went to law school and I was a first year associate at a large law firm in Chicago. And I had one of my, uh, one of my coworkers come in and be like, check this out. You have to see this crazy race that's coming to town. And it was a tough mutter. And I had never run 10 miles before at once in my life. So I didn't even know if I could do it. Uh, but we signed up as kind of a group to, to go do it. And I had a blast and everyone else thought, okay, that was fun. Mark it off the list, go on to other things. And immediately I was like, oh, what can I do next? When can I do another one of these? I was terrible at it. I kind of fell off the monkey bars. I couldn't do anything, but for some reason I just really appealed to me. And so I think I was 26, 27 at this time. And that's really was kind of my first intro into competition and running, really. Oh, that's awesome. So um, what was this? So it was a 10 mile Tough Mudder. Where was it? It was in Wisconsin. It was at like in Baraboo, Wisconsin. It was at the Uh little ski resort up there. Um, 
And so, yeah, it was just kind of like up and down these ski hills. And then you would do an obstacle and jump in water and crawl through mud. And I just thought it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. And instantly I was hooked. And then all of a sudden I saw that they had this 24 hour race that you could do and where you could run loops of this course for 24 hours. And Mm. for some reason I thought I could absolutely do this. Granted, I had never run like, (laughs) (laughs) I did one half marathon to train. I was like, if I can run a half marathon, I'll be good. Yeah. And, uh, (laughs) yeah, that's how it all started. I did not, I went from like zero to a hundred immediately. So I think for a lot... Oh, go ahead, Megan. I was going to ask, I've never done um, an obstacle race or anything, but how how did you change your training or like your preparation leading up to the obstacles? Like, do you actually practice what you're expecting to see on course? Honestly, after that, after I failed so miserably the first time, I uh, I started CrossFit. And this was right in the heyday of the CrossFit phase, like 2011, when things were just really ramping up and taking off. And actually I ended up competing in CrossFit for a while too, um, as well. I I could not do it now. (laughs) We'd say lift now, just no, 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 no. My everything hurts just looking at it. Uh, but back in the day, uh, I was actually pretty good and that helped a lot. I think just mimicking kind of the grip strength that you need. Um, cause that's really all these obstacles come down to is, is just being able to like have really good grip strength and support your body weight, um, through, uh, over long periods of time. I don't know a lot of people who do obstacle races, but you know, my impression of what the obstacles are is of course the most extreme, like you run through something and try not to get electrocuted. Mm-hmm. So besides <laughs> that, can you tell us like what some of the other non electrocution <laughs> obstacles are like? Yes. And that's, and honestly, they've, they've gone away from that because I think some of us have been electrocuted so many times that it's just, it's just <laughs> terrible. Uh, oh. so I mean, mainly it's, it's things like, uh, climbing over walls, crawling under mm-hmm. barbed wire, rope climbs, uh, monkey bars that kind of go like up. There's like swinging rings. So I tell people think of American Ninja Warrior, but like scaled down. And then there's a bunch of running in between those kinds of of obstacles. So it's, it's a lot of kind of just a, you know, grip strength type of stuff. And how do you prepare for the running part of it? I would assume that, okay, it's a 10 mile race. Then you've got some obstacles where your heart rate is still going to be high, but for a different reason. So do you do like shorter intervals to prepare and then intersperse like maybe some strength work between those running intervals? Um, what's your training? Like yeah, you, you actually kind of nailed it. So I think at the time when I was doing it, I actually didn't run high mileage at all. Um, mm-hmm. many of my world championships, that sounds terrible. Uh, my, I think I was running maybe 20 to 30 miles a week. Um, mm-hmm. and, but it was a lot of kind of intervals. It'd be like run half a mile, then stop and do like 30 burpees, something where you spike your heart rate and then yeah. run again, or do a bunch of pull-ups and then run again, which is why like, CrossFit kind of lent itself to it because I would just be the person doing laps around, you know, the half mile route and then coming back in and then doing something grip oriented. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I think I over time, especially when I started obstacle racing, we had nobody had any idea how to train for it. And so we all were just kind of making it up as we go along. Now you actually see gyms that where they rebuild obstacles from the races and you can actually go and practice on them. But we didn't have that back, you know, a decade ago. So, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so much has changed. Yeah, in like the past five or ten years with the popularity of Spartan Racing, Mm -hmm. Tough Mudders, American Ninja Warrior, where you've got gyms that are dedicated to people preparing for obstacles like that. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm sure it's really elevated the quality of the fields too because people you people now know how to better train yeah absolutely and and you see we've seen a lot more crossover of people that come in with really strong track backgrounds or cross-country backgrounds and then if they can get over the hurdle to to learn how to do the obstacles they'll be really really good but Mm. I think a lot of I always try to encourage, since I'm now more in the ultra running world, and I try to encourage a lot of people to go and try them and go and try a Spartan race, do something like that. And everyone's always afraid of getting injured or something like that. Mm -hmm. So there is like that resistance. And I get it. As a runner who has been injured many, many times in my life, there's always the back of my mind. I'm like, do not fall down the backside of this obstacle type of thing. And so uh, it can sometimes be a hard sell for sure. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> it's kind of like cyclists, you know, road cyclists not wanting to take up mountain biking because exactly. they might crash. Yeah. Which is funny because you crash on a mountain bike and it's way less catastrophic than crashing on a road bike in Absolutely. my experience. So Yes, same. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about the death race. What yeah. is it? Why is it called that? And you did it how many times? You finished um, three times. I finished three times. I did it four times. Um, there's the, okay. my, my only DNF to this date, and it was because I got frostbite in my oh. hands and toes. And to this day, I still have issues from it. Um, um. So it's a race that was created before, actually. It was the founder of the Spartan Race, of Spartan race Joe DeSena. But before Spartan Race was founded, he decided to have this race on his property up in um, Vermont, where basically you go until they tell you that the race is over. So you, you kind of know when the race starts, you don't really know what, you don't know when it ends for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the longest one I ever did lasted 79 hours. The shortest was like 36 (laughs) and they give you a gear list and you show up one year. It was a bag of onions, 20 pounds of pennies. Uh, what else (laughs) have we had to bring adult diapers, uh, one year. And they basically take you through a series of tasks or sometimes it may be something like run to the top of this mountain, memorize the Bible verse at the top of the mountain, and then you have to come down and recite the Bible verse back. But you've been up for 48 hours, and so your memory is kind of shot. Or there's those, right. I'll never forget, I had to make an origami crane at one point to be able to go <laughs> to the next checkpoint. And you're so sleep deprived that you're just like, I don't even know how to make an origami crane. I was just terrible, (laughs) terrible. But it was basically, it was fun in the way that what it really appealed to were people that wanted to see how far they could go. And how do you Mm -hmm. deal with that unknown of not knowing when something is going to be over? Because Mm -hmm. you run a marathon, for instance, and you know, you may be at mile 22, but you know, in 4.2 miles, you're going to be done. Um, and so it's kind of that same ethos that we've seen a lot with like the last person standing races. And I did Mm -hmm. Big's backyard twice. And so it's that you have to gear really up to just know, like, you don't know when this is going to end. It just Mm -hmm. can keep going and going and going. (laughs) 
So what were some like mental strategies that you used to get through a race like that? I think it's the same thing that I use with any other, with almost any ultra that I do. It's just basically I do like the chunking thing to think, just get through the next mile, get through the next 10 minutes, just get through this Mm -hmm. task. Because when you start to look at the overarching thing as a whole, that's when you start to just give up on yourself. I mean, if you're in a hundred miler and you're at mile 20 and you're hurting already, you think, Oh God, there's no way I have 80 more miles left in me. And I have been in that position before, but you have to kind of know that you'll kind of ride these waves that you'll go up and down and through the race and whatnot. So I always try and just not look ahead, stay focused in the moment. I also just distract myself a lot, whether that be, Mm -hmm. Um, in World's Toughest Mudder, the race where you run an obstacle race for 24 hours, I would always sing songs to myself in my head to keep mm-hmm. myself occupied or just talk with other competitors. Um, you know, things just to get yourself out of your own brain. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and for the for the most part, do you know, like, besides the um, the death race, do you know like what obstacles are going to be on the course and where they're positioned for the most part? When I first started, we didn't. There were no course maps. You just thought it would be maybe around eight miles, 10 miles, and you just go out there and do whatever it is that you face. But now, I mean, over the past decades, Spartan Race and Tough Mudder have really made a push to make it a legitimate sport. And it very much is, yes, there's a course map. You know what the obstacles are going to be. Like you can go out there and practice on them beforehand. So that, that part has changed. I am very like old school, kind of like the good old days where I really liked just going out there and just being like, well, I gotta, gotta have to figure this out right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of like the uncertainty. Oh, absolutely. And I think that that, <laughs> that led me to want to do, I always really thrived on the really long stuff and the really just like the grinding, the death by a thousand cuts, as I put it. Um, and so I think that just led me towards wanting to do like more of that thing, more of that. Yeah. I think for some types of races, almost not knowing what you're getting yourself into can make you perform better because you just have to approach it with an open mind and be in the moment rather than like being too prepared and knowing, okay, this is coming at you know, mile 6.7, this is coming at mile 10. If you just go in without knowing, and I mean, I'm not suggesting being unprepared is good, but helping you just like stay in the moment and just focus on what you're doing at that moment can definitely help both with mental and physical race performance. Yeah. And I'm definitely one of those people. I know there are people who like to go back to the same races over and over again to try and better their times or do things like that. I I don't, I like to try one race once and then move on to the next thing. The, the, uh, the, the, um, the exception of that has been world's toughest matter, which I go back to every year just because mm-hmm. it's kind of like where I started everything and it's a 24 hour race and the obstacles change every year. So it is a little bit different, but for me, if I've run a hundred miler, like I don't really want to run that same hundred miler again, because it's almost worse because I know what I'm getting myself into. (laughs) I know what the terrible parts of the course are going to be, for instance. (laughs) Yeah. So you did the Barkley Marathon, which I think a lot, you know, more non ultra runners are familiar with because of the Netflix documentary and the media coverage. So, and the year you did it sounds like was one of the most horrible 
conditions. Is that yes. right? I so, mean, yes. Every year is terrible, terrible conditions. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yes, it was nobody finished the year that I ran. Um, oh. Yeah. So what you know, as someone who actually did it, what was it like? Um, it was the only race I've ever gone into where I was actually terrified that I could die. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, because you think about it, and luckily Laz has a perfect. No one's ever died out there. Um, and That's we call good. it quote unquote out there because. If you're given, you know, the night before he puts up a big map and you then mark your own map based off that of the location of where all the 13 books are. And then you're just supposed to find your way, wander around in the woods and find those books. And it's always foggy. It's always raining or snowing or both. (laughs) And I mean, the, the, the fear of being out there by yourself, especially if you're a virgin and which is what they call people who have never done it before. Mm-hmm. I was like, I could be wandering around here for days and not know. And you have to carry all your own gear. You carry, there are the aid stations. There are two water drops out there. And half the time the bottles of water are frozen. So you're kind of like out of luck. Uh, so it is, it was probably the most terrifying race that I have ever walked into. Um, yeah. But it, there's just something that's so unique and magical about it because what you think is going to go wrong is never the thing that goes wrong and everything goes wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are times that you can't see your hand in front of your own face. And it's just, <laughs> you're just, I was like looking down following a compass bearing, but then making sure that I don't fall off a cliff ledge. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. So it's amazing. And unfortunately, I have actually gotten back in three more times since um, I ran. And mm. every time I had injured myself before I was able to get the start line. So maybe one day I'll be able to get back out there. But it is, it's 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 yeah. such a crazy race that you can't really explain unless you've like been out there. Though I think I think the documentary does a fair de- a job, decent job of it, though it makes it look pretty easy because three people finished that year. So... <laughs> <laughs> So now that you've kind of switched over to ultras, do you think that you'll go back there one day? I would love to. I mean, it's yeah. it's de- it's definitely kind of like, you know, you have to apply. It's it's a bit out of my control. And I also understand, look, like Laz gave me three more opportunities and I wasn't able to get there in one piece. So, you know, it makes sense that he would move on to other people. So I don't, you know, I get that. Um, so yeah, that is this still always kind of the, the, the fun kind of... Um, white whale out there but you know there are so many cool races that I'd love to do so yeah so tell us a little bit about what made you switch from um obstacle racing to ultras um of course we want to know what shoes you're training in right now (laughs) and which ones are your favorites um but yeah why the switch yeah new challenge or for me I have always thrived off of the pursuit of mastery and Mm -hmm. not that you can ever really master anything but I felt like I had a pretty good run of it with obstacle racing. And I, uh, to be honest, I did not know trail racing was a thing before I started. I was like, wait, you can run up and down mountains and not have to do obstacles. (laughs) I I didn't know. I had maybe heard of Leadville or something like that back in like 2008, but I had no idea that the ultra running world existed. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of everything that I love, which is kind of the long, hard suffer fest. Um, and so I think I needed a change. And I also, to be honest, there's a part of me that I know I ran away from obstacle racing because 
I let pressure get to me. Um, you know, I was super fortunate and I did really well. And I had a lot of media and press and magazine covers and I let it get in my head. Um, and I think I, for me, ultra running was kind of a, a, a break, something different, mm-hmm. something new. Um, so yeah. And, um, footwear, what do I train in? Oh God. I am such a shoe nerd. It's so terrible. And I also, <laughs> because I, I hate to say that I am an injury prone runner, but I do have a long, you know, past with injuries that I always think that I can fix my injury issues if I find the perfect shoe. Oh. <laughs> so and it, and it never works out that way. Um, no. <laughs> so I rotate as much as possible. I actually, um, I really, for road right now, um, I actually, and speed workouts, I love the endorphin speed. It's like, Mm -hmm. I don't, I can't do carbon plates. They're too aggressive for me, but I Mm -hmm. really like the nylon plate. Um, I actually ran a hundred K and ultra, uh, trail ultra in them and they held up great. Um, yeah, it was on three or the two, the two, the two, Mm -hmm. I have not run in the three. I've, I've bought up all of the twos that I can find. Um, because I really like them and I'm afraid that Mm. the three isn't going to be exactly the same and I'm weird like that. (laughs) Well, it's very different. Is it? I would think that the two would be more easily used on trails than the three. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because, and it held up well. I mean, they were California trails, um, so they're not super rocky, but Mm. didn't have an issue. I was a little bit worried they were dry, but, um, felt great. So my quads were a bit thrashed by the end, but (laughs) meh. I could have just been the race. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then on trails, I actually am the one weirdo who I really lost sportivas work really well for me. Um, mm-hmm. I have super narrow feet and uh the caracal is something that I run in a bunch. Um mm-hmm. and then I always end up by the end of hundred milers, I always end up in speed goats because they're the only thing that after like 80 miles, my feet don't hate me in, but I try mm-hmm. to not train in hokas for, um, I've just, they've caused some hip stuff for me. So oh, I mm-hmm. like, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. So. Yeah. You know, I never thought about like in the middle of an ultra, mm-hmm. the fact that like changing your shoes at mile 80 could be useful in it's just huge. helping you feel a little more refreshed or just changing, uh, where the stress is and where you're taking a little bit of stress off. So, uh, what, like when you do an ultra, what do you typically start out in and then switch to? It's always the La Sportiva to the Hoka's or generally that's what it's been. Um, Mm -hmm. and I have done some in like Nike wild horse, but the wild horse has changed so much over the years that it's like, Mm. it's hit or miss for me on versions. Um, like, or, I mean, there are, there are ultras where you can get away with the red shoes. Like I oh, sure. like the endorphin speeds that I wore. I had a pair of Hoka's in a drop bag in case I need to switch them out at like mile 50, but I was fine. Um, so I think you talk to most ultra runners and I think for like a hundred K or a hundred miler, they're going to have at least one possibly two backup shoes just to mm-hmm. change, change the stress. Um, yeah. be, and it just, you feel like a new person for sure. Oh, I bet. Yeah. yeah. Have you run in the Saucony Endorphin Edge? I have. I uh, I I got a pair and I was like, this is going to be my shoe because I thought yep. it would be kind of like the speed, except not. But 
every time it caused, I like my left piriformis would seize up with those shoes and I could not figure it out every, and it was like two miles in and every single time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't, maybe I just can't do carbon plates. I don't know. Cause the same thing happened to me with the Hoka, um, the, um, what's their carbon trail shoe, not the mock, the, um, they have a carbon plated trail shoe that I tried to and had the same issue with. So I don't know if it's just carbon's too aggressive for me. I don't, I don't know, but just with my well, stride. Yeah. Of course, depending on the plate and the geometry of the yeah. shoe, but uh, those super shoes do tend to push people faster into hip extension. Yeah. Like it kind of pushes you into push off faster and that can cause glute issues in people who have some weakness there. So it may just be that, the carbon plated shoes you've tried are yeah. too aggressive for your biomechanics. But right. not, even within like the category of carbon plated super shoes, some have like a less aggressive rocker hmm. than others. Yeah. Um, have you ever tried the Puma Deviate Nitro 2? I haven't. Is it, there's the one, Puma is like the one brand I've never run in, but now like I hear great things about it. So might just it's have like to be a, one of those things. I would actually say it's. Like a less aggressive speed too. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's good to know. I may have to, especially when I run out of my stockpile of speed too. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I mean, I can't be the only person that does that. You find a shoe that like works so well for you and you just are like, you know what? I'm going to buy because I know they're going to change it in the next iteration and it's going to suck. <laughs> so... Sure, some of your listeners can understand that. Oh, yes. I am personally obsessed with the New Balance Beacon and have bought way, way too many pairs of the Beacon and continue my campaign to get New Balance to resurrect it. But No, I get it. I mean, you find something you like. And I I think for me, too, the thing that I've always geeked out is like, I had Achilles issues for a while. So I was actually looking at your website, trying to figure out shoes like that didn't have stiff heel counters and things like that and like going through all of that. And I also know on my right foot, I have, um, Halix Limitus. And so I have a, my right big toe does not move. So I was trying to find types of shoes that work for that and do it. I'm like, Oh my God, it's just the worst, just experimenting with everything. <laughs> but then it's like, but my left foot's fine. doesn't need that. It's like, but my right yeah. foot is like having a day. So Yeah. Well, we're always happy to advise you on shoes <laughs> if you need some advice. <laughs> no, but it's bad. Like, things that I didn't even like think about before. I never thought mm. that like something could be better for a different kind of foot. I mean, I and I have, hate to say that I was sponsored by Ultra for a while, which was, mm-hmm. in hindsight, a terrible, terrible decision on my part because just of how my foot is. But I didn't think I ran in them for like a month. I was like, they feel fine. But then like it takes a longer than that for issues to start really. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm like, Oh, things that I wish I could have known back in the day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that funny that like you and I are the same age and yeah. I agree. I was a professional cyclist and at my age now I look back at when I was racing full time, you know, 15 mm-hmm. years ago. And it's like, if only I had the wisdom that I have now with like the time and, you know, fitness that I had back then. Oh, but totally. it's not how it works, right? Like there's a reason that there are so many sayings about like wisdom and age. And yeah. so 
I guess all we can do is take the wisdom that we've gained and like use that to yeah. become better athletes moving forward. But yeah, it's like, oh, there's so many things I would tell my 23 year old self. <laughs> also be super grateful that you can like run it. I remember I, w- I also ran for Reebok for a while and they made an obstacle racing shoe that was basically a racing flat on lugs. And I remember running like 50 miles on those and like my feet now think I think I was 29 at the time. And I was a decade later. I'm like, I could never do that. But I'm like, I was fine at the time. Yeah. Like it was like, it wasn't, didn't break my feet in 10 places. So be grateful for your youth. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I would love for you to share with us just how you balance out a very serious full-time job and training. So like how many miles a week do you train? How do you fit it in with a lot of work as a lawyer? Um, Because I'm sure that the way that you figured it out could help some of our listeners figure out how to better balance out their work and training lives. Yeah. So I, um, I will put this in air quotes. I am a quote unquote low mileage runner um, for compared to most professional runners. Um, And I, Mm -hmm. I'm not like professional runner, but like I have competed at a high level. So I am probably about 55 to 60 miles a week, um, mm-hmm. like 80% on trails um, with a fair amount of vert. So it does take longer. Um, and I run five days a week. I cross train one day and then I have a rest day. And so, um, you know, for me, I have always been a morning person. And so to like that is when my training it gets in. I wake up anywhere between like 4.30 and 5 a.m. and then I'm out the door. I also fully realize I am I have the luxury of not having children. And so that gives me extra time. Um, I, I Hats off to anyone who is able to juggle career, sports, and kids because I've only found I can do two. Um, <laughs> so I've never tried the third. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's pretty much it's training early in the mornings. Um, and then I try and do twice a week. I have like a strength session, um, that I'll do in the evenings. Um, that's like, if I can get to it, then I can. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and weekends are really the long runs and where I pile on, um, a lot of the mileage. Mm -hmm. And so it's, I, you know, I, it'd have to be flexible sometimes, but, um, I always find that if you if something is really important to you and you prioritize it, you generally find a way to get it done. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, and because we're we're really good these days at wasting time, like oh, scrolling yeah. on our phones or watching Netflix. And it's like I tell my patients a lot, like, look, you need to do the strength training, but it doesn't have to take up you know two hours every week. Right. Do fifteen minutes twice a week and. I think everyone can find 15 minutes in their schedule a couple days a week, but, or I'm also the weirdo that does like my physical therapy exercise sometimes while I work. Cause it's easy enough. If I have like uh-huh. a resistance band and I'm sitting on a conference call, like it's easy enough to be just like walking across my office doing monster walks. Um, <laughs> so also the queen of multitasking sometimes yes. <laughs> harder to do with some jobs. I do realize I have a, pretty flexible job in terms of just like I'm sitting behind a desk, but yes. 
Why is Amelia breathing so hard on this conference call? <laughs> well, and also like uh, all my coworkers know that I have um, like multiple mobility tools in my office. So if somebody needs a foam roller, then it's like, come and grab it. I am a big advocate of people having foam rollers in their office. <laughs> yeah. Yes. See. Why not? Yeah. Or they all know they're like, if they have an injury problem, they're like, can you tell us? I'm like, can you help me with this? You've probably hurt this bone before, or this muscle before. I'm like, oh, yes. <laughs> Actually, I can tell you all about your obturator internist. <laughs> Sorry. So you're also like the backup um, PT at your office. I, yes, yes. Yes, absolutely. And among all my running friends, it's kind of funny. I always say, I, I do wish there's this part of me. I've always wanted to go back to school for physical therapy, but I'm like, I'm uh-huh. 40. So it's a little bit, but I, I like to think I'm an honorary physical therapist given how many body parts I've injured. <laughs> well, you know, it's never too late. And there is quite a need for the combination of a lawyer and a PT. So. There we go. Never know. Yeah. Never know. So um, speaking of injuries, you've been really open in the press and on podcasts discuss, right, discussing some of the injuries that you've been through. And I think that that's really helpful for people because I think as runners, for some reason in particular, we don't like to talk about our injuries. Like if something's hurting, we kind of hide it and like limp along. And it's only when like, we can't walk that we finally tell our friends like, oh, yeah, I've been dealing with this for five months. So can you tell us a little bit about the injuries that you've dealt with and just maybe some tips for our listeners and like what you've learned that has helped you get through that process? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think injury shame is so real and I can talk about this forever because, and and this is an issue with runners because all of our issues are mainly overuse issues and Mm -hmm. we feel like they should be able to be preventable. Um, and that we feel that if, if we had done the right things, we wouldn't be in this position, but also they're ubiquitous to like every runner. We all get injured. It's not, it's not if it's when, Mm -hmm. And, um, so I think for me, like, so I started my first major injuries. I ended up with a femoral stress fracture. I was training for Western States and it was devastating to me. And I threw my hands up in the air and I had no idea what happened, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then that started off an injury cycle for me in which I came back too quickly from the femoral stress fracture, ended up with sacral stress fracture. And then over the next four, three years ended up with total of six stress fractures. So, which we can table and come back to. And I mean, the whole reason between that is behind that is that I was in total denial that an eating disorder that I had been dealing with since I was 16 years old had come back in full force. And all of these things were just from under fueling. I mean, I don't know, but like, I can tell you under fueling was probably mm-hmm. the reason I was breaking bones every six months. Um, but I think, you know, it was, it was a terrible time for me. I was kind of at the top of my sport in obstacle racing and everyone would come up to me, oh, injured again, again. And you get this identity of that injured girl. Mm-hmm. And it was the way that I dealt with through it is I, I wrote, I started writing and um, I still have all of the old pieces that I wrote, like in the process of going through this, of what it feels like, of that loss of identity and just the shame that comes with being an injured athlete. Um, and, um, so I think over the time what I've learned in these past however many years is that I had no reason to be so ashamed. It's just a natural part 
of being an athlete. Granted, that many injuries that quickly, yes, there is an indication that there is something wrong, but it happens to all of us. You know, I, I had like a something going on with my hip last year, soft tissue wise, that we never really figured out what it was. It took me out of running for six weeks, but it's like that stuff happens. You know, it's like we have to work through it and we have to constantly be understanding that it is like this push and this pull. Um, and so I don't know. I, I just try and take away the whole shame around it and just say, hey, there's no harm in taking a few days off to then prevent something that is no. going to be three weeks off or three months off, you know, like, so just trying to be smart. And I think probably the worst part of injury for athletes also is coming back from it and then being hyper aware of everything that like, oh God, did I just send myself back? Is this happening to me again? And I still deal with that. You know, I still, there are certain areas of my body that will, um, like if I feel something in like my right hip, I'm like, oh shoot. But my left hip, I'll be like, nah, whatever. It's fine. I've never been injured there before. <laughs> so it's just dealing with that kind of stuff. I guess one question I have, I know you mentioned that um, you've had a lot of, like you've had your fair share of injuries in the past. Um, what's the longest amount of time you were out of running for? Yeah. Um, so my femoral stress fracture, I think I was out for four months and then I was running again for three weeks before I broke my sacrum. So if you don't count those three weeks, then with, I think it was probably about a good eight, nine months that I was out. Um, which was a very, very long time. And uh, I became a pretty good swimmer in that time. Uh, but, and I think at some point you just kind of, I always tell people that the worst part of injury is probably the first week or two where you almost go through these withdrawal symptoms of like you see people running down the street and you want to throw things at them. But like once you get over that hump, then you're just like, okay, like, I kind of treat physical therapy and rehab then as my full-time job and as this, in a weird way, this like fun way to fix something and to make me better. I also take every injury period. I was like, oh, well, I'm going to like be very, uh, I'm going to fix all of my weaknesses during this time. It never helps. It never works. But, <laughs> but having that mindset can really yeah. help make the difference in like just how you feel about that time period. If it's so easy when you're hurt to like, probably get, get through yeah, yeah. whatever, you know, is going to be happening. So, yeah, I feel like with every, any injury you, you like rehab, come back from, it builds a little bit more mental yeah. strength. Yeah, too, absolutely. Which is something important mm -hmm. for and, the ultras. Like. And you also just understand your body more. Like, and I understand now, and maybe I understand too much about how something in my big toe affects my hip. Um, or, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, so it's like, I'm like, okay, now I know too much of how this is all working. And if I have my list of my physical therapy exercises for like every single body part that needs it, I would probably be doing them for 24 hours a day. So... <laughs> it It is good to have an understanding of just how everything is connected, because I mm -hmm. think that can help you like not ignore like a little twinge that you might get like, oh, OK, this has been hurting for a week. Maybe I should, you know, look into this. Right. But there is a fine line between like 
paying too much attention to every little twinge you get and not paying enough attention for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And you also have to know, and I'm sure you have to, you know, this like as physical therapists of where your patient kind of leans on that scale. Cause Mm -hmm. I remember one of my physical therapists at Stanford, he was like, I'm going to kick you in the shin before every run. So something else hurts. So you can focus on that and not every (laughs) single step of what could go wrong. Yes. So, you know, that's not something that they teach in PT school. <laughs> I, you know, I advocate for it because I'm always like, oh, something else hurts that I can focus on this and not the other thing. <laughs> I actually do sometimes use that. Like if I'm in the middle of a race or a training session, like something's bothering me. I'm testing a shoe and maybe it's making like, you yeah. know, my big toe hurt. I'll start, I'll like look for anything else on my body that is uncomfortable so I can pay attention to that. (laughs) Totally. Or if it's like my stomach hurts or something, I'm having GI issues. I'm like, well, at least I'm not focused on my left Achilles right now. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know, uh, Amelia, you said earlier about how being injured can affect your identity. And I think that's such an important conversation to have because it's so common, even for non-professional athletes to really have their sport become part of their identity. And to a degree, there's nothing wrong with that. But when it gets to the point where if you can't do your sport, now you've lost a major part of yourself, well, what do you replace that with? Um, and I think it's it's important for every runner, no matter if you're running 100 miles a week or 10 miles a week, to also develop the other parts of your life that aren't related to your sport. Because one, it's just good to be a well-rounded person, but two, it it helps you deal with those times where you might not be able to run because you're hurt or you're sick or life has gotten in the way. Um, I, gosh, almost, actually, it was 10 years ago. I had a bad crash biking and hurt my neck. And I couldn't ride for almost a year. And I mean, that was like devastating to me because cycling had truly become most of my identity. And I was really lucky to have a teammate who happens to be a sports psychologist who, (laughs) yeah, very lucky. Um, And she really helped me see kind of the problem that that was, that cycling was so much of my identity and how to kind of adjust my way of thinking so that one, I wasn't so depressed because I couldn't ride, but two, just to become a healthier person from a mental perspective. So I think when you were dealing with your injuries, was there anything in particular that kind of helped you refocus so that you didn't feel that loss of identity so greatly? Yeah, I, I, you know, and I think it changes with each kind of, with each person and each time in life. Um, I definitely, there's certain way I, I advocate picking up a new sport. For me, all I could do was swim for a long time. And so mm-hmm. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to try and figure out how this, how I do this. Yeah. And also, if you hate something, don't force yourself to do it at the right. same time. Um, and I, I've also found now I've gotten into mountain biking and some other things and just to have a a different outlet is helpful at the same time. Like I said, don't force yourself. I don't think that finding a substitute sport is always the answer. Um, but also just having a way to get outside, um, that you can do that's not aggravating your injury is an amazing thing. And I think that, 
initially when I get injured, I want to shut out the running world. Like I don't want to see races. I don't want to see people running. I don't want to see anything like that. And I realize that kind of works for the short term, but it, what I love about running so much is the community. And what I love about ultras is the community and being a part of that. And so actually for me, being able to volunteer at races, being able to crew for other people at races when I'm injured is super helpful Mm -hmm. um, for me to help stay connected and to understand, you know, it's like I crewed for a friend and who was running hard rock, um, you know, big hundred miler. And I was coming off a calcaneal stress fracture. So I couldn't do anything, but I was driving around all the aid stations, helping out. And it just made me connect there. And I think that that is an outlet that if you can do that, some people get really pissy and don't even want to be around it, want to pretend nothing's going on, which can work, but I found the opposite is better for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is something about being able to help others that is very meaningful, right? And when, even though you can't participate, it still keeps you around the sport that you love and you're able to help your friends and that, that in a way can fill up the hole and then even more because you're able to help others in their pursuit. Yeah, absolutely. And I love, I I love that, that community aspect. And so, I mean, it's like, I love pacing at ultras. I mean, clearly you're injured. You can't, but I'm like, I will be a professional pacer as just anyone, you know, like I love this type of stuff. It's so much fun to me. I love it more than racing almost. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so can we talk a little bit, you mentioned earlier that you feel I can, I agree. It was probably a major factor. Um, your recovery from an eating disorder. I think you said that your stress fractures were kind of the catalyst that kind of finally made you get help. So again, eating disorders are so common in the running community and are even less talked about than injuries. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about just your recovery process, how you got help, what you do now to kind of help you stay on track and any advice that you would have for people who are maybe struggling and haven't asked for help yet? Yeah, I think, you know, my, my, my story is a very, very long one. Um, so I'll spare all the details, but I think, so I was diagnosed uh, with an eating disorder when I was 16 and I was hospitalized and I was told no activity, no sports, nothing. And so this is the story that I don't tell people. I didn't run, I didn't do sports in college or anything like that because I wasn't allowed to, I was too sick. Um, and at that time it was very much a, you know, if you have an eating disorder, you're not allowed to be an athlete because they would see running or anything like that as a form of purging as a form of your disorder. And I ended up going in and out of treatment for a few, for many years um, until my mid twenties in which I felt I was kind of in like a good place, a firm place. And at that point, I remember that's when I started getting the itch to be active, to Mm -hmm. do that obstacle race. And in my mind thinking, I don't know, like, is this healthy for me to do? But I, I, I went with it and I did it. And, and actually it was, it was in some ways, I think it was the best thing for me because I saw my body as an athlete and like something that I needed to feed and take care of to perform well. Several years down the line, that message somehow got lost and I found myself slipping back into things, um, which, 
you know, and I, and I don't know what that was from pressure or from feeling like seeing my body on magazine covers. I don't know, but a bunch of things. And so I came to this point after what, six stress fractures in three years that I was like, okay, something is wrong. Like, and I can't, I can't, I can't even get to a start line anymore. And so I may quote unquote look like an athlete, but I'm too injured to even be out there. And so it was this kind of moment that this isn't normal. And if I want to continue doing the things that I love to do, like I need help. And I specifically wanted to understand, could I be an eating disorder recovery and be an athlete? And can I separate running from the disorder or is running part of my disorder. And I was so scarred, I think, from my experiences 20 years prior where I was told no movement, no running, nothing that I didn't know if it was possible. And um, to my surprise, the model and treatment has changed over the years. And now a lot of facilities will work with athletes. A lot of therapists will work with athletes. And which was phenomenal for me. I went to a place called Opal Food and Body in Seattle, and it's one of the co-founders was a D1 runner at University of Washington, and she gets it. And so the idea now is to no longer take the sport from you, but can you can you feed yourself appropriately and um, you know and separate the sport from your disorder? And so I think for me it was like that entire period of going back into treatment was about that exploration and how do I do this and how do I do this in a way that is sustainable for my body. Um, and that's going to look different for every person because, for instance, I was in treatment with um, people who it like their sport was their disorder. They hated their sport. They hated doing it, but like they felt compelled to do it. Whereas for me, I was like, no, no, no. Like I would run even if they told me running made me gain weight, I would still run. And so I think that like, but there are other types of movement that I will not do. Like, I don't like sitting on a spin bike in a gym. I hate it. It feels disordered to me. The only reason I would do it would be to burn calories. And so it's that kind of that exploration and learning how to do that. And so when I talk to people now, because I think one of the most common questions that I get is, is how do you tell? How do you know what you're doing is is from a place of disorder, from a place of health. And I think it's constantly questioning your motives and your intentions. And how do you feel when you can't run? And are you restricting when you can't run? Are you using other behaviors? And it, it just being brutally honest with yourself because it's so easy to you know, delude yourself into thinking that it's no, 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 I'm fine. No, uh. So it's, it's, it's just a constant examination and it changes every day sometimes. So do you like, you were in treatment a few years ago, right? Do you yeah. still, if you're willing to talk about this, like, do you still talk to a therapist? Does your coach keep you on track? Like what are, how do you have others help you stay accountable? Yeah, I I still see a therapist. Um, not as often as I used to, but yeah. So I still see a therapist and check in with her. And then I am super fortunate in that my coach was actually one of the first people that I ever told that I was struggling. And uh, he was my biggest fan of going back into treatment. One of the few people that knew where I was for three months. <laughs> uh, and so that is always a checkpoint for me. And I have like a special space in my training log where I write about 
what I'm feeling about mm-hmm. my body or about things that are happening or about food. And there have been ups and downs. And I think that I also have this pact with him and with myself that if I have not fed myself appropriately for the day, like I don't get to train, you know, and that's, and I know that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it it is this kind of like, I do have those guardrails around me, which is super helpful. But at the same time, I've been at this long enough that if I wanted to lie and, and cheat and, and slide my way back into an eating disorder, I absolutely could. I just don't. Yeah, You know, (laughs) like you get to a place where you're just like, I'm so tired of fighting. And I tell people, because I think I've talked to people and they go, well, how do I know when it's right to go into treatment or when it's right to seek help? Because how do I know it will get any better? And I was like, you don't know it will get better. It's a leap of faith. But you have to know that it's not sustainable with what you're doing now. And it can't get any worse. And I think that that's where the, the point that I got to myself. What would you say to like someone who's listening right now who might be struggling and maybe hasn't talked to anyone about it? What, who is the best person to talk to? Like, where would they even start if they wanted to get help? Yeah, it's so dependent for each person. And I think that the best person to talk to is the person you feel the safest with. And that changes for anyone. And that It could be a friend. It could be a family member. It could be an anonymous hotline, for instance. But just tell somebody. And sometimes telling somebody anonymously is the best thing because secrets and everything kind of – they thrive when you hide them. And so an eating disorder is going to thrive in secrecy. It's going to – and it gets stronger the more that you let it take over. And so – the way to like the first step is outing it, you know, and as painful that can be is, is, is just telling someone. And so I think that, um, you know, finding a safe person, or even if you are really serious, depending on like finding a therapist, uh, just having somebody to be able to just bring it out in the light, get it out of you mm-hmm. <laughs> and the yeah. things that you're worried about and the things that you're thinking and throwing them into the external world, um, I think is, is, is a really good first step. Yeah. Um, and just being curious, you know, I called several treatment facilities and I remember being like, I don't know. I don't think that I'm not that sick. I don't need this. And that's fine. You don't have to go through with it. You don't have to go through with anything, but it can help to just be, go through that process and see how you feel. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And we'll, uh, we'll put some links to maybe some hotlines in the show notes so that people have some resources. Well, Amelia, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, We so much appreciate your insight and your willingness to share what you've been through, because like I said, I think it's really helpful for others to hear about what other people have been through and how they've dealt with these tough things. And I know it takes a lot of strength and courage to talk about it because you're putting yourself out there and that's definitely hard to do. Um, if people want to find you online, Amelia, um, where is the best place to do that? Yeah. Uh, you can find me Instagram at arboon11. 
Um, I'm on Twitter at Amelia Boone. I do have a website, Amelia Boone Racing, that I'm locked out of, but you can find me there. Uh, and I also recently, I haven't really done much with it, but started a Substack, um, which is just under Amelia Boone, um, that you can find me through. Awesome. So, and we'll put yeah. those links down at the bottom too cool. for everyone to find. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. Um, Don't forget, leave us a review, leave us a comment. We love to hear what you have to say. If there's any topics you want us to cover, let us know. We love to hear from our listeners. Thanks, everyone.